uh, John chapter 2. Today, uh, I want to start by telling you a story. It's actually uh, an interesting thing that I ran across a couple, a couple weeks ago, an article that I ran across. And um, apparently, 2020 uh, was weirder than I thought, okay? Like COVID and uh, elections and politicians and everything made it quite the eventful year, made it weird. But for a small town in northern Italy, it got even weirder because one day they went to their faucets and they turned the faucets to uh, see water flowing. But instead of water that was flowing, it was actually wine. And oddly enough, and I don't understand the logistics or the infrastructure that had to go in place, but there was a mix-up in the valves, or some valves got crossed somehow, some way, and actually from their spigots, from their faucets, wine was flowing from their sinks. And I, from what I heard, it was like a three-hour window um, where wine is coming out of their faucets. And so, and out of their bath, their bathtubs and showers and all of this stuff. And so, as you know, officials and you know, city officials or whatever are running to figure it out. The citizens were running to grab buckets and bottles. Um, and what an awesome thing! So that was maybe not water to wine, but today we will be looking at Jesus's first miracle in Cana of changing water to wine at the wedding feast. And so, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, as we get into these next few chapters, um, from what I've read, uh, these next 11 chapters, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 12, you really see Jesus do a lot of miracles. You see the ministry of Jesus, and in him, sometimes these um, chapters are called the book of signs, as Jesus really intently reveals his glory over these next 11 chapters. Now he's embarking on his ministry, right? He's met with John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes him in the Jordan. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descends on him and rests on him like a dove. And his ministry starts. Some of the other gospel uh, accounts show that he goes off into the desert for 40 days. And he experiences temptation uh, for 40 days as he's out in the wilderness. Well, here today we see that he is at a wedding with his mother and some of his disciples, and we'll start reading in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone jars, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, um, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not wear, know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Before we get into this, let's pray once again and ask God's blessing over his word. Father, thank you once again for your word, that we have the awesome joy and privilege, God, to gather, to hear from it. God, to just simply read it aloud in the presence of your people is something beautiful and holy. To read your word aloud together, aloud together and to allow your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to illuminate it, to bring it alive, to reveal you to us more and more. God, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity this morning. I pray, God, that you would show yourself to us through your word, by your spirit, for your glory, and that we would be your church. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at a wedding, and Jesus' mother's there. And he's there with some of his disciples. We don't know if it's all 12 disciples already. In chapter 1, we've got the account of five of his disciples following him. But we don't know how the others, through the book of John, through the writing of John, um, how the others, the other seven, um, started following Jesus. We only hear in in chapter 6 where they were called the 12 already at that point. But... The disciples are here with him, and his mother comes up to him, and he says, and she says, they have run out of wine. She runs up, and she says, they have no wine, and Jesus responds to her. To run out of wine at a wedding feast would be embarrassing, but it would cause serious social embarrassment and discord, particularly in a Hebrew-Jewish festival feast like this. To run out of wine would be a serious embarrassment. These weddings, if you remember, they wouldn't just last for a few hours on a Friday or Saturday night while everybody's out on the dance floor shaking it to uh, YMCA. Okay, a wedding feast in Jewish times, in these times, would last maybe a week. Now, could you imagine being responsible for that wedding and providing an open bar for a whole week? Right? Somebody just had a, had, a, had a wedding recently. So, Jesus responds to his mother. And his response is really interesting. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And as you read that, um, don't read into it something that it's not. Okay, our English translations don't do really well here. Okay, when you read woman, don't think, woman... Why are you bugging me? Woman, what does this have to do with me? With some uh, tone that might not be intended, okay? There is, now, from, from my study this week, there is a slight rebuke here, okay? Um, some scholars say that at this time, Mary may have been a widow already. That Joseph may have passed, and she may have had to rely on Jesus. You know, when, when the husband passes, a lot of times the, the mother, the widow, would end up relying on her sons to help provide for the family. So maybe this is just like kind of a go-to reaction. Like, there's a problem, I'm going to Jesus. There's a problem, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see my son who has helped me along the way all these years. Maybe she also understands who he is. Maybe she remembers back to when the angel came to her when she was pregnant and declared that he would be called Jesus, Savior of his people. She comes to him, and his response is a slight rebuke, but don't take it as harsh because there is a loving tone to the original language here. 
He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. See, this phrase, the hour, or my hour, or the hour, um, it is actually a, a theme through the book of John. Over and over it again, you see it many times in the book of John. Uh, you'll see it again in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, 12, 13, 16, 17, and 19, where in some way, some phrase of the hour is used. In most all the other places, this is in reference to the culmination of Christ's mission in his death and his resurrection. And so when he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour, ha- my, my hour has not come yet. We're, he's, it kind of seems weird because what does this have to do with me? I'm not ready to die yet. What does the lack of wine have to do with my death and my resurrection and my mission? It's interesting when you look at this whole picture, there are so many symbols involved. You have these stone jars for purification. Now, in ceremonies like weddings, um, a lot of times guests of the wedding would be ceremonially washed before they eat. Washing of hands. Not just, not just like wash your hands before you eat. You know, like my kids, I, I love these awesome summer days because my kids are outside playing all the time. But they're constantly filthy. Constantly. And any time it's time for lunch or any time you go in and wash up for dinner. Go in and wash your hands because they're constantly, it's not just a washing of hands for practical reasons, but there's a ceremonial purification washing that is happening with these guests. They would use living water from a spring or a well. Well that was, or water that was brought up from a spring or a well was known as living water. And for purification purposes, they would use what was called living water. You'll hear more about that in John chapter 4, won't we? And it was important that these vessels were made of stone because according to Mosaic law, they could not be contaminated. Stone vessels were not contaminated, but clay vessels, earthenware vessels, were contaminated once used, um, and if they were contaminated or made unclean, they would have to be smashed or destroyed. Something I found interesting this week was that um, archaeologists um, actually found, they unearthed a quarry and a stone vessel manufacturing site not too far from Cana where this would have taken place. And I think they did that somewhat recently uh, over the last few years. So Jesus changes water into wine. And it's not just wine, but it's good wine. It's exceptional wine. Many of you know that in a, in a wedding like this or a, a feast like this, they would serve the good wine first, right? The master of, of the feast actually says that. You, usually they serve the good wine first, and then after people have had a little too much to drink, then they would go to the lesser wine, the normal wine, the less quality wine, because they're not so discerning at that point. And actually, when you look at the text there, you look at the, the Hebrew text there, that, that's exactly what it's referring to. That's exactly what it's talking about. And so once the guests have had a little too much, you serve the lesser quality stuff. It's like starting with a nice craft beer or a nice small batch stuff and then getting over to your blats or something like that. No offense to your blats drinkers. 
He changes the water to wine, and it's good wine. As I was looking at this uh, throughout the week, the idea of the purpose of miracles came to mind. Like when you read about some of these extraordinary miracles through the scriptures, what are they for? What do they mean? And of course, a lot of times, you know it's just simply about God being God and Jesus being God and flexing his divinity a little bit. Verse 11 of our text today uh, says that this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. And it says this, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Right? So that Jesus did this sign, and what it did is it revealed, it manifested his glory, who he was, his divinity, and because of it, his followers, his disciples believed in him. Makes me think of um, towards the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, so he did many other signs, not just the ones recorded here, but these are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus does these miracles. He does these uh, signs, manifest his glory so that his disciples may believe. So that you and I may believe, that you and I, thousands of years later, may open these words written by the Holy Spirit, that we may see the wonders of our God and that we too would believe, that we would see his glory revealed through his scriptures and that we too might put our faith and our hope and our trust in him alone. There's the miracle of water to wine. H2O transformed into something far more complex. Hydrogen and oxygen, but now it's far more complex. It's hydrogen and oxygen, but it's also carbon and sugar and nitrogen. All of this molecular structure of the liquid absolutely changed into something different. Not just rearranged. He's showing that he's God and he's Lord and sovereign over all of creation, over science itself, and so much more. But there's so much more symbolism to this miracle. Many biblical scholars believe that there's something happening here much deeper, much bigger than the miracle of changing water into wine itself. There's a symbolism here that goes beyond As I said, John in verse 11 calls this miracle a sign. And a sign is something that informs or points to something else. And here, I believe it's not just pointing to his godness or his divinity, but it's pointing to something that is happening. It's not just that he's pointing to uh, the fact that he's Messiah, but there are many, many layers of deep symbolism to this miracle. First off, we're at a wedding, right? We're at a wedding and Jesus, Jesus honors marriage by performing his first miracle during a wedding. And it's not just so that the bride and groom wouldn't suffer embarrassment for running out of wine. But I think of the way that he is the bridegroom. Christ himself is the bridegroom and we as his church are the bride. Right? What a beautiful relationship, one that is supposed to be far more intimate than the average American Christian realizes. 
the commitment that we're supposed to have to Christ, not being idolatrous, not being adulterous by going off to idols, that following our own fleshly desires and wants, but the relationship because we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our groom and we are his bride. Reminds me of Revelation chapter 19 and you see the culmination of it all in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ is the groom, the church, his bride. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise be to God, those of us that he has called to himself, that he has purchased with his blood and has made us his own, that we are the bride of Christ and we too will sup with him. There's symbolism and significance in the numbers uh, at this time in Hebrew culture, numbers were very significant and symbolic of many different things. Many of you probably know that oftentimes people say that seven is God's number. That seven is actually a, a symbol of perfection and completeness. And as I was reading our text this week and, and reading some commentaries, it, it, it came to my mind that there's a number mentioned here of stone purification jars, isn't there? And it's a number that actually is one short of seven, and it denotes an incompleteness. These vessels of purification are six. Verse seven of our text again, it says, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So these, uh, they filled the, the vessels, and they filled them to the brim. And there's a beautiful symbolism here, right? These are old covenant purification vessels, ceremonial vessels for purifying people. And Jesus says, take those vessels, those six vessels, and fill them to the brim. Symbolizing the old covenant and the way of purification is full and complete now because Christ is here. Symbolizing that the Old Testament way of being made clean and sacrifice, right? If you were unclean, you had to make sacrifice to be uh, seen as clean again. That this Old Testament way is now full and complete. The way that Moses instituted is now full and complete because of Christ. There's a new, complete, perfect way for purification there's a new and complete and perfect way to be made clean. Not the blood of a lamb or a goat, but the blood of the spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The stone purification jars, the six of them are now full to the brim. And there's something here that I never realized up until uh, the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, Josh Dostal down in Rock County, Mercy Hill, Rock County, uh, and D.A. Carson uh, have illuminated some things to my brain. At first read, we assume, and I've assumed, that the water that was transformed into wine was taken out of those stone purification jars. But there's a nuance here to the Greek verb that is used for draw in verse 8. The Greek word is enteleo. And this word, I think, is only used a few times in the scriptures. I think it's only used about four times in the scriptures. And it means to draw out, but it specifically means to draw out of a well. 
Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7, let's go back there. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars, fill the jars with water, excuse me. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. That word draw there is enteleo, and it means to draw specifically from a well. And if you remember, the water that's used for ceremonial purification is living water. It's water that is taken from a well or a spring. And who is the living water. It's Jesus. And as I said, we'll talk more about this in a few weeks when we're in John chapter 4. But these jars are full to the brim. The old covenant is complete. Jesus came to fulfill it, as he said in Matthew chapter 5. And now he says, draw from the spring of living water, who is Jesus, and he turns it into wine. And wine has a symbolism so grand and so vast. It symbolizes uh, through the Old Testament, you see quite a bit that wine would symbolize plenty and bounty and, 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 and having a fullness of itself. We also know the symbolism that Christ instituted in the Lord's Supper when he used bread and wine as his body and blood. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Right? That's purification. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. The beautiful symbolism of wine in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ changes everything. And his first miracle is a beautiful symbolic declaration that not only is he God, not only is he the long-awaited Messiah, but that he is the fulfillment and the completion of the old covenant, and he, has institu- he is instituting a new one in his blood. Jesus changes everything. Have you ever studied the book of Hebrews before? A few years ago, we had a great... Um, privilege of going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, I was able to preach some of the sermons in that series, and it was wonderful for me. I learned so much. Like, if you want, like, if you have, if you've ever had trouble understanding the Old Testament, um, don't stop reading the Old Testament, but also <laughs> read Hebrews. Hebrews helps shine a light on what all of the Old Testament was about. It actually um, says in chapter 10 that the Old Testament law was a shadow of things to come in Christ Jesus. I think we actually called that series Shadows or something like that, something along those lines. Where Jesus changes everything. Jesus is better. In Hebrews chapter 3, he is the better Moses. Right? And with Moses, the law came through Moses. He's a symbol of the old covenant. And in Christ, there is a new covenant that supersedes that of Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. 
Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken of by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Jesus Christ is the better Moses. He changes everything. The old uh, is fulfilled in him. If you don't mind, I'm going to read quite a bit of Hebrews with you guys today. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, an overview, uh, a little bit of a, a summary and a synopsis here that Jesus is better. He's the better high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who, is, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For, if, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who, is, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As you go on in Hebrews chapter 5, you see that he is the priest forever, eternal in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron the Levite. Verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 8 New covenant, better promises. Verse 3 says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there would already be priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary. That is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. 
For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. If you don't mind, I'm just going to keep reading. Verse 23 says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by sacrificing of himself. Just as people were destined to die once and after to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I know that's a lot of scripture, and I'm not sorry. Like There's something beautiful about just reading aloud the words of God in church especially when it so beautifully points to the beautiful reality that Jesus is better. That Jesus fulfills all of the old covenants, all of the old promises that in Christ Jesus we have everything we need to stand before a holy God that he in his blood purifies us, that he in his work on the cross purifies us, his bride, that the stone jars are full, that it is complete, and now there is a beautiful new covenant in his blood. One of grace and one of mercy. One that as he reveals his glory to his church and they believe in him, they find salvation and eternal life. The jars are full, completed in Christ, the author of a new covenant in his blood, and he poured it out for you and for me. So today I would implore you to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus your faith and your hope and your trust in him. I know uh, many of us in this room, we don't wrestle with keeping uh, a law like, like, the Jew, like the Jews did. Right when Jesus comes as the Messiah, it, it, it shook everything up. Everything they knew, the way they knew before was now just being shaken to its foundation. They didn't see with the eyes that you read here in Hebrews that it was all just a picture of the one who was to come. It, it just shook everything up. But you and I, we might not wrestle with law-keeping in that manner, but we too sometimes gravitate to a different form of law, a different form of checkmark Christianity that if I do this, do this, do this, do this, now I am clean and pure before God. But that's not the case. We are only pure and righteous because of Jesus. And anything we do, any good works we do, is only beautiful worship unto him. For our conclusion today, as the band comes, I'm going to read one more passage from Hebrews. And I'd like you to take these words 
to heart. I want you to hear these words. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Take these words to heart. Draw near to him. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And let's spur one another on as the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance of that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilt, from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us draw near to God. I am so grateful that it wasn't just about wine. It wasn't just so a bride and groom wouldn't be embarrassed on their big day when the wine ran out. That it wasn't even just simply him flexing his godness, but that it was him declaring that he is everything. That the jars are now full, that the old covenant is now full and complete in him and in his blood. Again, trust Jesus. Draw near to him. Receive salvation in him. Put your faith and hope and trust in him and let's spur one another on as the body, as the bride of Jesus. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your work on the cross and that you've made us your own. God, I pray that that reality the reality of you, the glory of you would capture our hearts and that we would believe more deeply, that we would see your grandeur, that we would see your magnificence, not just in a miracle of water to wine, but God, in the fulfillment of all scripture in you, Jesus. God, let us place our trust in you. Let us believe in you. Let us live to the glory of your name. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, let's stand and let's sing together.